Thanks for listening to the Faith Assembly of God podcast. Please join us at 9 11 a.m. at the main campus and 11 a.m. at the Monk's Corner, Remount, and North Charleston campuses. Thank you for listening, and we hope that God blesses you through doing so. I'm blessed to introduce our speaker to you today. It's Chris Allen. Chris has been with us before. Chris preaches all around the world, 70 different countries. He is involved in amazing crusade evangelism where they see eyes being opened up, the lame walk again, incredible testimonies of what God's doing, people being filled with the Holy Spirit, masses being saved in Africa, Southeast Asia, wherever he goes. God has used him as a crusade evangelist, great preacher of the gospel. Give Chris a hand as he comes right now, a warm welcome. God bless you, Chris. Praise God. I'm uh, greatly honored to be here this morning, and especially because uh, I myself am a product of the ministry of a missionary, and I stand here because a missionary witnessed to me on the street, and that's how I first heard the gospel. And uh, I'll share more with you, but let's stand up first, and let's have a word of prayer. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to your presence this morning. I ask you, Father, this morning that you would let your... Word, go with power. Lord, touch our hearts, Jesus, above all, that you be glorified. I also ask you, Father, that you would touch our hearts for missions to, Father, to receive of everything that you have for us. I ask you to stretch out your hand, Father, and heal those that are sick, do miracles in this place, and for everything you do, we covenant to give you all the glory, honor, and praise because you alone are worthy in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Praise God. You know, there's something wonderful about seeing a man who couldn't walk, get up and dance. Amen? Praise God. Let's go to the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 1, starting verse 13, here Paul shares his story. For he said, you've heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. What Paul is basically saying is that he was a religious person, he was a Jew, he was a religious person, and he was so committed to his religion that when the Jews were persecuting the church, Paul was in the forefront. And also that he was zealous for traditions. You know, religious people always look backwards. They don't like to look forwards, they like to look backwards, and so... They are more concerned about the relics and the traditions of the past. And Paul was one of those people. And then something happened. It says, verse 15, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. Paul is saying that I'm here because it pleased God. I'm saved because it pleased God. And he says that he separated me from my mother's womb. In other words, Paul lived his life with a sense of destiny. He somehow understood why God had created him and for what purpose God had put him on this earth. And that is why he was, he said, you know, I rejoice in all situations, in all circumstances. I know what it is to be, uh, to, uh, to be abased. I know what it is to abound, but, but I'm sufficient in all things. And, you know, true satisfaction comes not from what you have or what you own, Uh, But true satisfaction comes from knowing your destiny, understanding your purpose. Why did God put me on this earth and to live out 
that purpose. That is what I call a fruitful life. That is what I call understanding. You know, that, that's what brings true satisfaction in life. And Paul found it. And, and he said that, and you know, everybody has a different calling, but now he's talking about his calling. And he's saying, well, it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. You know, the call to preach the gospel is because of the grace of God. God gives us, I mean, I do what I do, and it's because of the grace of God. And, and you know, there, there are people who, who watch these videos, watch these pictures, and they say, well, you know, I could do that. And I said to one guy, I'm sure you could do that. He said, it looks so simple. I said, it is very simple. Uh, for me, it is simple because I have the grace to do it. When God gives you grace to something, you find great joy in doing what you're doing because God's grace is upon you. You know, now what someone else is doing may look easy, but it's very difficult if you don't have the grace to do it. And God graces people not according to how qualified they are, how educated they are, but he does it because that's the way he wants to do it. God does things in a way so that he alone gets the glory, so that nobody can say, I did this because of my faith, or I did this because, you know... Um, of this, that, or the other, whatever reason, but this is because of the grace of God. So now, then, then he gives us the reason why God called him and why God separated him. It says, to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen. God's primary calling upon our lives is not to preach. The older I get, the more I become aware of the fact that, that, that God's calling on my life is, of course, it is to preach, but it is not my primary calling. God's primary purpose for my life is to reveal His Son in me, to give me a revelation of Jesus Christ. I remember when I came out of Bible school, I was ready to go and take the whole world. And the older you grow, you realize that's not the primary purpose. The primary purpose is to reveal Christ in me because I can only give or preach with conviction those things that are a revelation to me. And the first thing is that I, might, I may know Jesus. And Paul, you know, he was very experienced in the ministry. He had raised up people from the dead and he said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. I'm willing to suffer like him and to become like him in his death if that is the price I have to pay to obtain a resurrection like him. So that's God's primary calling is to give us a revelation of Jesus. And when we have that revelation of Jesus, from that revelation a ministry is born. We preach Christ because he's a revelation to us. Now this is Paul's story and I'm going to do something unusual for a missions convention, I want to share with you my story. And I call it, Why I Preach the Gospel. Why I Preach the Gospel, because I don't come from a regular American background. I live in Lancaster County, but you can see I don't look Amish. <laughs> but I want to share with you why I preach the gospel. Now, the reasons I preach the gospel can be categorized into two categories. The first category of reasons is I call the spiritual reasons why I preach the gospel. And uh, one of those spiritual reasons, probably the main one, is because Jesus told us to preach the gospel. In Mark chapter 16, verses 15 onwards, he said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And that is not a, you know, it's called the great commission. It's not called the great suggestion. 
It's not a suggestion. It is a commitment. And we in the assemblies of God, we have wholeheartedly embraced that commitment. All these men you saw here, you know, the, the Joneses. I'm just trying to keep up with the Joneses, you know. And, uh, and, and you know, I mean, you, you've got all these missionaries. You've got that, that bulletin. And you've got names of, I mean, there's scores of people on the, on the list that this church is, is supporting. And in the years to come, you will get opportunities to support even more people. God is going to raise up young men and women from this congregation who are going to go out. But that is because we have embraced the Great Commission and we have realized that our lives are not about ourselves. We don't live here. It's not about us. It's for others. That's the nature of the gospel. So the first reason we preach the gospel is because Jesus told us to preach the gospel. He commanded us to preach the gospel. The second reason, spiritual reason why I preach the gospel is because Jesus is the only way to God. Now, there are many religions in this world, and they all say a lot of good things, but there is something unique about Jesus. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. And that is the truth. There are good religions, but there is only one way to the Father, and that is through Jesus Christ. So, I have seven billion reasons to preach the gospel because there are seven billion people on this earth. There are billions of people who have never heard. And we have to do it as if we are the only ones doing it. Not because we are the only ones, there's others doing it, but the level of our commitment should be at that level that we are the only ones who are doing it and we are going to do our best. And everybody should be involved, either through giving or through going. If you don't go, Give. Some people say, well, I pray. No, you don't. You pray only where you put your dollars. <laughs> Everyone says, I pray. They don't. They're lying to you. When people say they're praying for something, they're lying to you unless they're putting their money in it. Because your prayers will always chase your dollars. So either you are going and you're giving, or you're giving, or you can do even both. So we are all involved in some way or the other. That's how we embrace the Great Commission. So these, you know, then the third spiritual reason why we preach the gospel is because we are living in the end times and the return of Christ is tied to the preaching of the gospel. In Matthew 24, 14, when Jesus was speaking about the end times, he said, then this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached as a witness to every nation and then shall the end come. So we have to preach the gospel to every nation. Amen. Thank you for your enthusiasm. <laughs> now, I'm going to go to the second category of reasons why I preach the gospel. And that is personal reasons. We all have personal reasons why we do things. And the first personal reason I preach the gospel is because of what Jesus has done for me. And I want to share with you my story. I grew up in a Muslim home. My father's family, we are direct descendants of Muhammad, the prophet of Islam. And until the age of 21, I never met a Christian. I never saw a Bible. I never saw the inside of a church. I didn't know anything about Christianity. The only thing I knew about Christianity was that just like we 
had our prophet Muhammad, the Christians had their prophet whose name was Isa. That is what the Muslims call Jesus. And that's all I knew. Until the age of eight, I had a, I had a happy childhood. My father was an army officer. And um, I had a happy childhood until the age of eight. My childhood memories are good until that age. And then something happened. And my parents separated and divorced. And my mother left us. And she went to live her own life. And, uh, and I have, I mean, I still, I know where she is, but I have very little contact with her. I have no relationship with her. I've seen her only a few times since I was eight years old. And my father married another lady, and this lady was very abusive. And I remember from the day after she came, from that day until the age of 13, I received severe beatings from her. If not every day, almost every day. I mean, she used to beat me with sticks and, uh, you know, those uh, uh, cricket bats, like a, like a baseball bat. I mean, she used to beat me with anything she could get a hold of. And that's how I grew up with severe beatings. There were wounds in my body that never healed for years until I was almost 13. And one day when I was 13 years old, uh, I was, by that time, I had lost my childhood. I just, wanted, I just wanted out of there, but I didn't know where to go. I was just a kid. And I saw an ad in the paper that the Air Force was taking kids my age as cadets, and they would give them an education, give them basic military training, and by the time they'd be 17, they'd start flying training, and they'd turn them into fighter pilots. So I applied for this program, and... Um, and, but there were thousands of applicants. There were about 10,000 applicants, and I think they were taking only 29 or 30 people. And I, I got in. I think I was number 26 or 27, and I got in. And the only reason I did that was not uh, for anything else except to get away from my home. But you know, when I was there, uh, far away from my, my father and my stepmother, I thought everything would be okay. And you know, we human beings, we are so naive. When people mistreat us or... Or, or torment us or hurt us. We think that if we can just get away from those people, everything is going to be okay. That's, it's not true. Because the real problem is that when that spirit of rejection and bitterness gets in your soul, it, it will torment you long after even those people are dead. I mean, that'll, that'll dictate to you how you respond to people, how you interpret people's actions, people's words. And so I couldn't understand why it still hurt, although I was so far away from my parents. And, uh, but it really hurt. And then by the time I was 15, I was suicidal. And uh, the only reason I didn't commit suicide was because, I, because Islam teaches that if you commit suicide, you go straight to hell. That's what Islam actually teaches. That's why I've never understood this whole concept of suicide bombers, because suicide is one of those cardinal sins uh, there's no mitigating circumstances, you know, that well, a person committed suicide because of this reason. So it's, you know, it's, uh, God kind of understands that. No, suicide is a sin and that's it. And I always believed there was a God. I believed there was a heaven and a hell. And I knew that I was a sinner and that I would go to hell when I died. I knew that. And I was very afraid of eternity. I was afraid of facing eternity and going to hell. And I, was, I didn't want to commit suicide for that reason. Well, my life was, you can say, it was like a living hell. Then when I was 17, our country went to war. And by that time, I knew enough of the Quran. 
and, the, and Islam actually teaches that if you die in a holy war, in a jihad, you go straight to heaven. And just before the war started, the president got on the radio. He said, we are in conflict with our neighbors and we are going to go to war. And this is jihad. This is a holy war. So I made a plan. I said, I'm going to get killed in this jihad and I'm going to go to heaven. I'm going to be out of this life and I will be in heaven. Now, you might not understand this because uh, Americans love life. Those people, they're not afraid to die. And uh, I think sometimes we love life a bit too much. It's okay to love life, but sometimes I think we love life too much because Jesus did talk about dying, you know. And not being afraid to die. I'm not afraid to die because I know where I'm going. That's why I go to risky places. It doesn't make any difference. You know, if they kill me, you know, it's, hey, you only kicked me upstairs, you know. You can't, <laughs> you know, you can't take anything from me. The worst thing you could do to me is the best thing that could ever happen to me. That's how I look at it, you know. My wife doesn't like it that I talk this way, but that's the honest truth. But anyway, when, so I spent a whole month purifying myself and praying and fasting and reading the Quran, and then the war started. In December uh, 3rd, 1971, I was 17 years old, and uh, I was, I mean, I had done some basic flying, but I was not, I mean, I wasn't a qualified fighter pilot. I was only 17 years old, but... I was trained in uh, small arms, so I volunteered for ground operations, and I did my best to get killed. That was my whole idea. I mean, I wanted to catch a bullet. I did everything I could to draw enemy fire, and, uh, and the war ended, and I was still alive, and a lot of good people died, and I had friends who died, and I couldn't understand the cruelty of the, the irony of the whole situation because I saw, I mean, all these people who died... Thousands of people died, and they were all young men. It wasn't old people. It was all young men who had everything to live for. They had families. They had parents who loved them. And, uh, uh, you know, it was so sad. And worse than that were those who were maimed, you know, for life. There were people who had lost their limbs and people who would never walk anymore or people who, who were mentally mentally, uh, how do you say, deranged or affected by this. And, I mean, even an artillery shell, uh, uh, you know, exploding in a proximity can, can mess up your brain for the rest of your life. And, you know, things like that I saw. And, and that, at that time, I began to doubt, is there a God? And if there is a God, does he even care? And I was kind of, I became like an agnostic. And then, so I left, uh, but then I got commissioned in the army. I left the Air Force. I became an army officer. And then I left the army. Then I was back in again. And then I left in again. And I was in again. And I honestly had no direction in my life. And then when I was 21 years old, one day I met a missionary on the street. And he began to talk to me about Jesus. And you know, the thing was that he was standing on a street corner handing out tracts. And uh, uh, he didn't seek me out. I sought him out. I, because there were, there were thousands of people on the street in the market that day. I happened to be one of them. And I saw this tall white man handing out tracts. And I remember looking at him. I'll never forget this. This was in December 1975. I remember looking at this man and thinking, this man has something I don't have. He has a peace and he has a joy which I don't have. And I want to find out 
what, because those days, you know, people used to be on drugs, you know, this was the hippie days, and I want to find out what he's smoking, you know, I want to find out what he's on. So I went to him and began to talk to him, and he began to tell me about Jesus. And you know, when he began to tell me about Jesus, when I heard that name, I tell you, something grabbed me on the inside. I don't know, I don't know how to describe it. There are things you just cannot describe. There's some things that just happened. I had never read the Bible, but something just grabbed me. And, and I, I uh, you know, uh, let, let me tell you a little story. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was in Zimbabwe, and, and it, was, it was Sunday night, the last night. There was a, a, a mother and a child who came and, uh, up to the platform to give the testimony, and I asked, the, I asked the mother what happened, and she was crying. She was weeping so profusely she couldn't speak. So I, and I tried to get a word out of her, and she couldn't speak. So I said, is there anybody who else who knows this lady? So another lady came up. And there were about 80,000, 90,000 in, in the crowd that night. And this lady comes up, and she says, well, this is my sister. I said, so what happened here? She says, this is her daughter, nine years old. She was born paralyzed and had never walked. And... Um, I said, really? She said, yes, she's standing and walking for the first time. So I grabbed the girl's hand and we walked around the platform and the crowd was cheering and the mother was standing there weeping and it was wonderful. And the next night, I remember I was on the Swiss Airlines flight flying to Zurich from Johannesburg and I was still pumped up and this, I was replaying this thing in my mind and I was trying to understand what is it that can heal a little girl who was born totally paralyzed, has never been able to move a limb her whole life, that, I mean, her mother carries her to a meeting, and then that, uh, you know, that this little girl gets up and begins to walk. And I'm, I'm trying to understand the process, you know, uh, how, how this happens. I know it happens. I've seen it many times, but how does it happen? And, you know, I was trying to get my, wrap my mind around this, and I, I couldn't understand, and then I came to the conclusion why this happened. This happened because I realized that there is a name that is above every name. Yeah. And that name is so precious that God even commands us not to take it in vain. Is the name of Jesus. And it suddenly dawned. I began to weep because I realized that, you know, there were years when with this mouth I told lies, I cussed. And that God could use these unworthy lips to speak that worthy name. And when I spoke that name, this little girl gets up and begins to walk. And then I began to understand how I got saved. I had never read the Bible. I hadn't gone through the four spiritual laws or all that. I didn't know. But this man, he mentioned that name. And when he spoke that name, something grabbed me. And he said, do you want to receive Jesus? I said, yes. So I received Jesus. And that was, I should say, a turning point in my life. Because I remember when I prayed the sinner's prayer and I opened my eyes, suddenly, uh, you know, up to then my whole life had been in a gray scale. Suddenly everything was in color, in technicolor. And I was, I mean, I was not a perfect human being, but, but 
I hadn't become perfect overnight, but there, were, there was such a drastic change in my life that my father, who, uh, you know, he was a general at that time. He and another general and a colonel and a major, all they were friends. They all grilled me for three days and they said that nobody can change so much in such a short time because I was a certified sinner. I lived a very unclean life. And so they sent me to the army mental hospital where they locked me up for two and a half weeks and then I began to share the gospel there and the staff began to get saved. So the psychiatrist said, he said, you know, so the psychiatrist, he discharged me from there. So from there I was kept under house arrest and uh, they were trying to figure out because this was a big thing. I was an army officer, I'd become a Christian. And anyway, I escaped from there and I was on the streets witnessing preaching and then uh, one day I was arrested and I was in prison. I was in prison for almost a year. And then they said to me that when, they, when I went in, you know, they have laws similar to we have like in Guantanamo Bay, you know, you can lock someone up under suspicion and without uh, access to any counsel. And they used that against me. And I was uh, in prison indefinitely without access to any any counsel, any legal counsel, and they said, you will be here the rest of your life. You'll either come out in a casket or you'll come out if you go back to Islam. But I was, you know, I was there and, and uh, almost a year, and then when I was it, at the end of the, well, it was almost a year, and then I came out of prison. Something happened. I came out, and then they tried to convert me one more time, and then I was found, I was arrested again for having a Bible, and that's when they said, we have done everything, now we are going to execute you. And so I decided to escape, so I went to Afghanistan, I went to the Soviet Union, Turkey, Belgium, France, I escaped, and I ended up in Sweden, and where I, I got political asylum, and I got baptized with the Holy Spirit, and kept on preaching the gospel, and I stand here today. And I look back at my life and I look back at what God has done for me. And I want that everybody else on earth should experience something similar. So I preach the gospel because of what Jesus did for me. The second reason I preach the gospel is because of what I have seen Jesus do in the lives of others. I'm thinking of that little boy who was born mute born with a mass in his brain, and you heard him in front of the camera, he's speaking for the first time in his life. Let me tell you another story. A few years ago, I was in a township in Zambia called Chaisa. We were having anywhere between 60 to 80,000 people every night, and now, I've got a big PA system. When I'm preaching, you can hear me two or three miles away. And I'm always building on it. And the reason I have that big peer system is because I want everybody in town to hear the gospel whether they like it or not. I say, you don't come to me, I'll come to you. Not only will I come to you, I will get under your skin. So there was a house about a mile away. And this family didn't like Christians. The parents didn't like Christians. They had two children. They had a daughter who was 11 and they had a son who was 9. And the 9-year-old boy, he was totally paralyzed. He had contracted spinal meningitis when he was 2. And that had left him permanently paralyzed. So they used to leave their kids at house, tell the sister, look after your brother. 
mom and dad are going out with their friends, then they used to go to the local bar and drink beer with their friends every night. So I started to preach, our, our campaigns are normally six nights, so I started preaching on Tuesday night, and this little boy is in bed with his sister watching over him, and he can hear me preach. Wednesday night, he hears me preach. Thursday night, he says to his sister, could you please carry me to where this man is because I believe his Jesus is going to heal me. You know, the gospel we preach should be of the nature that can bring hope to a life that is totally hopeless. Because only that can generate faith in that person. Remember when Paul was in Lystra and he was preaching the gospel and he said there was a man there, 38 years old, who was lame from his mother's womb. He said the same heard Paul preach. And Paul perceived that he had faith to be healed. Paul saw something and that was because whatever it was that Paul preached, it said he preached the gospel, but the gospel that Paul preached was so powerful that it Elevated this man from a place of despair and hopelessness to a place of such faith that he had faith to be healed. That is why the gospel should never be played in a minor key. Because it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. The gospel is so powerful. Some people say, well, I live the gospel, a silent, don't be a silent witness. Come on, God gave you a mouth. Why did he give you a mouth? So this boy, he says to his sister, he said, I believe Jesus. And she, began, she said, I can't take you, mom and dad will be angry. And he said, I know mom and dad will be angry, but this is my only hope. Please take me there. I don't want to be a beggar the rest of my life. And she said, yeah, but you're heavy. And he began to cry. He says, I knew you're heavy, but this is my only chance. And he says, he said, I promise you I'm going to walk back. You just have to carry me one way because his Jesus is going to heal me tonight. So she saw her brother crying and she was moved and she picked him up on her back. She's, he's almost the same size as hers. Now in Africa, in those townships, the moment you step out the house, you know, the streets are unpaved, sharp stones, you know, there's potholes everywhere. And you can't see where you're going because there's no street lights. It's totally dark. So she began to carry her brother in pitch darkness. She walked about 10 yards and she fell on the ground and, 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 and he, they, they both hurt themselves. They began to cry and... He, he, she says, I don't know if I can do this. He says, no, you must please. This is my only chance. She says, okay. And she fell again. But by the time they, I saw them that night, you know, they were cut and bleeding in their heads, the skin on their faces, on their arms, their knees, shins, legs was gone. You know, they had been skinned and scraped against those rocks and they were bleeding, covered with dirt. But somehow they made it to the field. And that night Jesus healed that little boy. They came back home and they were playing in the kitchen and the parents came and they understood what had happened. They fell on the ground, they were weeping. The next evening we had their whole extended family and all their neighbors, they all came and got saved and they're in church today. You see, I preach the gospel because of what I have seen Jesus 
do in the lives of other people. The last reason I preach the gospel, the third reason, is very personal. Until a couple of years ago, it was very hard for me even to talk about it. I preached the gospel because of a man called Jim Turner. And let me explain to you who Jim Turner is. When I came out of prison, I started going to a church. And I remember it was a Wednesday night. I always used to go sit in the front. I was very eager to learn. And this was on a Wednesday night, midweek service. And the pastor said, he says, brother, next Sunday, could you please sit in the back? Because it's communion Sunday. And uh, I don't want you to come for communion. I just want you to sit in the back and not take communion. I said, pastor, why? He says, well, because in our denomination, we believe that you can have communion only when you're water baptized. I said, Pastor, but communion is partaking in the body and the blood of Christ. And Jesus died for me, and I want to partake in the body of blood and the, and the blood of Christ. He said, I know, I know, I know my heart goes out to you, but this is the rule in our denomination. This is our doctrine, and I don't necessarily agree with it, but there's nothing I can do. So I want you to sit in the back. So I said, Pastor, it's the middle of the week. Sunday is three, there's three more days to go to, to Sunday. Why don't you baptize me? He says, I can't baptize you. I said, is there anyone else you know who can baptize me? He says, no, I don't think anyone will baptize you. I said, Pastor, why? He said, you see, when you got saved as a Muslim, they wanted to kill you. But they also want to, you know, try to convince you to come back. But he says, Muslims, Islam doesn't have water baptism. But this is how they view the Christian water baptism. That when a person gets baptized, they know he has crossed the line of no return and he's never coming back. He said, that's what they believe. So if I baptize you or whoever baptizes you, they're going to kill you outright because they know that he has crossed the line, he's never coming back, there's no point in talking to him. So they'll kill both you and they will kill the pastor who baptized you. And this has happened a few times before. So pastors are very loath to baptize Muslim converts. So I was looking for someone to baptize me and then I met this American missionary called Jim Turner. And Jim Turner said, I barely knew the man. I'd met him a few times. He says, brother, I'm going to baptize you. I said, pastor, it's very risky for you to baptize me because they might even kill you. He says, I know what the risks are. But he said, but you know what? He said, this is what he said. He said, I've been watching you and I know that God's hand is over your life. And he said, I don't want anything to hinder you from fully partaking in that, uh, in that which God has for you. So if water baptism is so important to you, I'm going to baptize you. Don't worry about the consequences. So we went to the Arabian Sea, and in the presence of many Muslim and Christian witnesses, Jim Turner baptized me in water. And a few weeks later, I had to escape from the country. And five months later, when I was in Sweden, I got a letter from another U.S. missionary in which he wrote that Jim Turner has been killed by the Muslim extremists. 
and his body has been found. He was missing for several days, but they found his body. You know, you know, you can't even imagine what I went through. That an American missionary would die so that an Arab boy can take communion. And ever since that day in 1977, I have lived my life trying to pay off a debt that I know I can never repay. Every time I preach, every time I do an altar call, I'm trying to pay off a debt. When you're in the ministry, people will tell you that uh, there are times of discouragement. There are times you wonder, should I really be doing this? I have never been through that because of the price that was paid. Many times, I know mean, I could give up for me, but I could never give up for him because it cost him everything so that I can stand before you this morning and preach the gospel to you. I'm standing on someone else's shoulders and preaching this morning. And I know that even when I die and I make it to the other side, that debt will still remain unpaid. Because that man gave everything so that I could live and preach the gospel. And he had a wife, he left behind a wife and three children so that I could stand before you this morning and share the word of God with you. So I preached the gospel because of Jim Turner. Now you might say, well, I have no one like Jim Turner in my life. I find it hard to relate to that. But I want to tell you there is somebody who died for you. They mocked him, they beat him, they whipped him, they crowned him with thorns, covered with his own blood, covered with the spit of sinners, covered with dirt. He carried that cross to Calvary where they nailed him to the cross and where he suffered a painful death so that you and I can sit here this morning. So my challenge to you is, how are you going to live your life? Are you going to live a life that is worthy of the sacrifice that man made on the cross of Calvary? How are you going to live your life? Let's bow our heads together. Thank you, Father. Thanks for listening. For more, check out faithishere.org.